From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Nandi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. It's Tech Tuesday. When you're a teenager, nothing is more important than your friends. In the 1950s, that meant hanging out together at the diner, gossiping over burgers and milkshakes. In the 80s, it meant hours on the telephone every night, twirling the cord around your finger, discussing boys and bands. In the digital age, teenagers make and nurture friendships not only in person and over the phone, but also online. With thumbs flying, they text, post, and tag each other across platforms and around the clock. A new study finds that social media and video gaming are two of the most popular places teens say they make new friends. Sometimes they eventually meet in person, but often they don't. So how close can you really be to a friend you've never seen face-to-face? Today on Tech Tuesday, the nature of online friendship. And joining us in studio is Amanda Lenhart, Associate Director of Research at the Pew Research Center. Amanda Lenhart, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Lindsay Grace, professor in the School of Communication at American University and director of the school's game lab and studio. Lindsay Grace, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Amanda, why did you decide to examine teens and online friendship, and how did you conduct your survey? So we have been doing research on youth and technology for a number of years, and we've been doing focus groups with teens. And even as the thread of the research that we were studying in the past touched on many different topics, you know, online meanness or privacy, this concept that and this this idea that social media and technology were clearly important for teens' friendships kept coming up. And so it became something that we decided to study more formally um, to try to better understand the role that these new technologies were playing in facilitating and maintaining teens' friendships. And so we did a survey um, where we interviewed uh, a little bit more than a 1,000 teenagers, uh, and we also conducted a series of focus groups to talk with them about it. It's my understanding that this is just the first half of the study. The other staff has to do with more romantic relationships. Exactly, and that will be coming out in the next two weeks or so. Um, it looks at exactly that. how Among teens or in general? Among teens, uh, and how they're using these technologies for romantic relationships. I have a lot of memories for you. (laughs) (laughs) Let's first look at the numbers. How many teens reported that they've met new friends online? It's a bit more than half. About 57% of teens say they've met a new friend online. Um, Of course, that doesn't mean they've all met them in person. It's only about one in five teens who've actually met a friend in person who they first met online. What surprised you about those numbers? I was surprised at the number of teens who had actually met the friend in person. Um, You know, we know that all these new technologies, uh, and increasingly over the past probably five years, things like social media and games have um, created new ways for teens to interact with people online, whether that's through voice connections in a game or through the connections that they make and the information they share on social media. So the fact that they're making friendships isn't surprising. But then there's a lot of messaging that teens get about how making friends online is not a good idea, and certainly that meeting them is not a good idea, but they do it anyway. What are the most popular online venues to meet new friends? Well, social media is clearly um, uh, the dominant spot, um, particularly for girls. With boys, it's mixed. Um, They meet friends on social media, but they also meet them uh, through playing video games, and those are the the two main spaces where teens are meeting friends. What do teens say about meeting 
in person, people who they have met online, despite all of the warnings they get from a variety of sources, including, of course, their parents. Well, in our focus group, teens actually were pretty sanguine about it. Um, the ones who talked about it with us told of the different ways that they um, sort of vetted the people that they met. Um, so these were folks that they generally knew um, through their networks, particularly when they met them through a social media site. It was because they met them through a friend or a friend of a friend. Somebody connected them to this new person. So it wasn't somebody who was in a completely unknown quantity. And in the cases where it was an unknown quantity, the teens actually used the technology itself to try to verify who these folks were. Video chat. Video chatting, particularly using video chat. Um, and if somebody wouldn't video chat with them, that raised red flags. Lindsay, networked video game gaming is a place that a lot of boys report meeting new friends. How does the collaborative nature of some games lead to new bonds among the players. Certainly. So one of the interesting things about playing with someone online is the fact that you can actually uh, work together to solve a problem. So in a traditional first-person shooter, for example, you might have three people uh, geographically dispersed all trying to meet the same goal. So it's a really nice bonding opportunity because uh, players will come back from that experience and say, we did that together. Um, so we did that campaign together. Or we bested the dragon together. And so as a result of that, relationship as a result of that collaboration, online friendships grow stronger? Yes, yes. And they have these activities to, to rejoin. So if they've had a rough day, they go and meet each other again online, play through some mission in a game, and feel good about the way the world has unfolded for them. In case you're just joining us, that's Lindsay Grace. He is a professor in the School of Communication at American University and director of the school's game lab and studio. He joins us in studio to discuss teens and online friendship with Amanda Lenhart, associate director of research at the Pew Research Center. You too can join this conversation with your opinions, questions, or comments at 800-433-8850. Do you have online friends you've never met in person? How does online friendship differ from friendship in person? 800-433-8850. You can send email to kojo at wamu.org or a tweet at Kojo Show using the hashtag TechTuesday. Amanda, talk about the balance between spending time with friends in person, outside school, and spending time with friends online. Well, so I think it's always important when we're talking about how kids are spending time with their friends to remember that school happens to most kids. And they spend, you know, eight to nine hours a day in school, often with their friends, since many friends are made at school. Um, but that said, then when we look beyond the school, we see that um, the places where teens are spending a lot of time with their friends are kind of um, split. Initially, we see that friends' houses are places where teens gather and hang out, um, but that they also, um, uh, you know, say they spend time with friends online. Uh, and that can be, you know, online's a big word. It means a lot of different things to teens. Um, so that can be anything from video gaming to social media sites. It can be discussion sites. It can be on your Tumble blog. Uh, it can be a lot of different places. How much time do they spend at the homes of France? We don't know exactly how much time they're spending there, but we do know that at least half of teens say that that's one of the main places where they hang out with their friends. But they seem to spend as much time at home talking to friends face-to-face -face as they do in the digital space, or maybe more in the digital space than they do? Well, we certainly know that the communicating through digital means is really important for teens. So, you know, we see that text messaging is actually the I was dominant. about to say texting is very popular, <laughs> along with various smartphone apps. 
How do teens use those tools to stay in touch? So texting is the most popular way, um, the most common way that teens are staying in touch with their friends, um, partly because it's on your phone. Even if you don't have a smartphone, which still about 30% of kids don't have, um, you can still text your friends. Phone calling is also important. A lot of the tools that are found on a smartphone or on a phone of some kind are the ways that teens choose to stay in touch with their friends. But then they you know, use whatever resources are at their disposal. So that could be messaging through a social media site. That could be uh, posting uh, status updates or commenting. Uh, uh, that could be posting on blogs, using messaging apps. There's a lot of different ways that teens are communicating with each other. Lindsay, gaming attracts more boys than it does girls. Is that tied to the way that friendships evolve in gaming? So there's a couple of sort of theories around this. The first is that there's uh, something to the kinds of play that are afforded um, online interactions. So uh, first-person shooters, things that tend to be marketed towards uh, male players uh, or individuals identifying as male, uh, competitive play, uh, even though they may be cooperating on a single goal, they may be actually playing competitively. Uh, the other thing that, that also happens is that there is a kind of... Um, there's kind of an environment that uh, supports certain types of play and communities of play. And so we do know that in, in some game environments, uh, they're actually generally a, a bit sexist and uninviting to young females. And so a young female who is, you know, 15 years old, sort of uh, trying to, to go through the, the world, the life that they've chosen, it, it's very hard for them to participate in some of these environments. How about the kinds of games that girls prefer to play? It's my understanding that Farmville and Facebook games are popular with girls? Sure. This is uh, generally what we've found is that uh, casual play, what we sort of consider as social games, do have a, 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 a larger portion of female players. Uh, and the challenge there is that uh, some of these environments don't support uh, online voice chat, for example. So if your choice is to play a game like Halo on a console where you can collaborate with team members and uh, uh, complete a campaign together... Comparing that to something like Farmville, where you're really using uh, a platform like Facebook in order to communicate with other individuals, uh, the interaction is different and the quality of the interaction is different. We got a tweet from someone in the Billboard previewing the show. We talked about the old pen pal syndrome. This tweet from Mindy said, this isn't new. In 1983, I got a pen pal in England through the newspaper. We wrote letters for years and now we keep in touch on Facebook. So people apparently <laughs> combine the two older and newer technologies. On to the telephones. Here's Nicole in Rockville, Maryland. Nicole, your turn. Go ahead, please. So, um, I just wanted to mention that I'm currently in my late 20s, but when I was in high school and even going back to middle school, I had a total of three friends, and they are great. I still love them, but these are people that I only got to see for a little bit at a time, like maybe in one class or at lunch. I'd go home and I'd go on to the old uh, AIM, AOL Instant Messenger, mm -hmm. yep. and I had three friends who I'd met online. I am still friends with these people. So wait a minute, so now you later. have a total of six friends, correct? <laughs> I'm doing a little better these days, <laughs> but these are people that um, two live in Scotland and England and one lives in Colorado, and these are people that I have formed friendships just as deep with these people that I that I know in real life. Have you ever met any of the individuals? I have met two of them. Uh, one came from England, and we met actually for the very first time two years ago. The other one, I went to go visit her in Colorado. We met for the very first time four years ago. And the friendships were 
maintained, even though you met in person? Uh, I spoke to both of them yesterday. Oh, good. <laughs> well, that's, that's still working out for you. So, so we're doing pretty good. You're now up to six. Seems to me time <laughs> that you expand your base of friendships, isn't, isn't it? Um, six is enough? I, I do. I'm sorry? Six is enough? I, I do have a few more friends these days, but really close, strong friendships are still the ones that I started back in high school and middle school over the Internet because these were people that I could speak to about issues and things that would, were bothering me without the risk of going to school the next day and, oh, I don't want to talk to you today I'm glad because of what you said yesterday. I'm These glad are people that I... I'm sorry? I'm glad you brought that up because I was just about to ask Amanda Lenhart about what might be the other side of that coin, which... On the one hand, you want to share these things with people who you won't be encountering a lot in school. On the other hand, there's the problem of teens saying they're uncomfortable with oversharing on social media and online. First, what is oversharing and what do they worry about? So, you know, oversharing is, I think, um, when you put too much information about your life uh, on social media. And I think a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder. And I think what's important here is to remember that, you know, Nicole, she's interacting with her online friends in very intimate one-on-one -on -one ways where maybe she's emailing or they're having uh, chats. But when you post things on social media, you're sharing it with your entire network, right? And that network is made up of a lot of different people uh, with whom you have varying degrees of closeness. However, social media doesn't let you really differentiate. Um, well, this person's a closer friend, this person is a less close friend. So you share kind of the same thing with everyone. So maybe you do have friends who care what you had for breakfast. They really care. But, <laughs> but, but a lot of your friends probably don't care what you had for breakfast. And so I think that's one of the real challenges in social media is that you have these different audiences that you're trying to speak to. And, um, and managing how you present yourself to those varying audiences is, is quite hard. How about oversharing in terms of leading people with whom you're sharing to make negative comparisons with their own lives? Yeah, I mean, we certainly heard from teens that there's a lot of pressure around self-presentation. Um, and I think it comes from two places. It's that, one, there's the sense that I want to appeal to my, it's actually three places. I want to appeal to my peers. I want them to like me and think that I'm cool and all of the things that I wish them to perceive me. But also that I know that people can post things about me that I can't control. And I need to post things that I want to have out there as a kind of a, a hedge against that negative information that might be posted about me. And third, that adults tell me that people are going to be looking at my profile and making judgments about me, whether that's determining whether I'm worthy for a job or getting into college or getting that scholarship. And so there's a sense of pressure about um, how I'm going to be perceived. And so teens do care. And about 40% of them do care quite a bit about what they post and feel pressure to post positive content. Lindsay, is there a concern about sharing too much among gamers or worries about people saying or posting unflattering things about you? So I'd like to spin it positive. One of the things that we have seen uh, that works very well in this environment is that students or, or uh, teens who are lacking a community of support for the things that they are most interested in, which may be uh, there's, the next person is 10 miles away or 50 miles away, they can actually uh, can create that community in, in this space. So there's an activity called cosplay, which a lot of gamers are involved in, which is is essentially uh, dressing up as your favorite video game character. And so this is not something you would do on your first day of, of high school. 
but if you can go to a convention where there are thousands of people from all over the world coming to a cosplay convention, you've got this sense of community. And in the interim, you chat online, uh, either in game space or in, in other spaces, about building your costume and, and networking with individuals about finding resources to make your costume. And that level of support is really, I think, one of the one of the more positive spaces or one of the more positive opportunities in this space. Are there any negative um, aspects of being in the space? Uh, absolutely. So uh, you can also find uh, what we've seen is, is sometimes downward spirals where you fall in, just as you would in, in a traditional uh, school, you might fall into the wrong circles and start uh, learning about things that maybe you're not uh, mature enough to learn about or that you uh, maybe you know, sort of in a, a negative spiral in itself and, and, and plates and that sorts of things. Amanda, what are the challenges for teens who worry about unflattering remarks or photos being posted on social media that they cannot control or take down? Well, I think it's actually not just teenagers who struggle with this. It's, you know, it's living in an environment where anyone can take a photo of you and post it online. And in the past, you would be worried, well, well, as long as they can't tag me, maybe they don't know who I am or I can untag myself. But with greater facial recognition technologies, you know, you'll be able to be re-identified in those images. And I think that is a worry for teens. I mean, certainly in my focus groups, even many years ago, we, you know, talked to a young man who got suspended from his, you know, strict Catholic high school because he was seen holding a red cup in a photo that somebody took of him at a party that he wasn't aware was even taken. Now, he was probably drinking alcohol and doing illegal things, but he felt like he never even had a chance to kind of know that this was coming um, and, and to, to take steps to, to, you know, to keep his image pure, as it were. So I think, it's a, I think it's a real challenge, and I think teens, that's part of why teens are sharing information that they care about online and trying to kind of in some ways drown out the bad information or the information they don't want to be there um, so that it, they can present a more positive face. Study shows 42% of social media using teens have had someone post things on social media about them that they cannot change or control. Isn't lack of control over what's posted about you a problem for, well, everybody? Exactly. I mean, I think it's 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 one of these again the, the challenge of living in the digital age is that as we have more more and more ways to collect information about ourselves and about each other, whether that's drone footage that somebody posts or um, you know surveillance cameras or all the ways in which all of us are being more increasingly surveilled, um, that information can be posted online and shared and aggregated and used in a lot of different ways. Got to take a short break. If you have called, stay on the line. If you'd like to, the number is eight hundred four three three eight eight. Does your teenager spend more time interacting with friends online or in person? 800-433-8850 or send email to kojo at wamu.org. I'm Kojo Nandi. Welcome back to a Tech Tuesday conversation about teens and online friendship with Amanda Lenhart. She is the Associate Director of Research at the Pew Research Center. She joins us in studio with Lindsay Grace. He is a professor in the School of Communication at American University and director of the school's game lab and studio. We got an email from Anne in Pittsburgh who writes, I think it's important to emphasize that online interactions are real-life interactions, whether that is friendship, bullying, or threats, especially threats of sexual violence, which also makes young women shy away from certain video game platforms. 
Um, Lindsay, talk about that. Sure. So one of the things I, I want to mention is that uh, while we're talking about something like cyberbullying, it's important to remember that some of the, the skills and interactions that people are practicing in the online space are obviously going to affect them for the rest of their lives. This includes practicing appropriate sort of online etiquette or netiquette. Uh, and this includes understanding how to handle such situations. The same way in IRL, in real life, people had to learn how to uh, handle social dynamics and how to deal with bullies. Uh, we're we're giving teens an opportunity to practice this within their specific spaces. Now, games are unique in that games have some wonderful attributes. I've been teaching games for more than a decade. Uh, but there are also very specific communities that are sometimes supportive and sometimes not. Uh, so I'll be speaking at a, a conference in a couple of weeks at UC Berkeley that's a, a, a community uh, called Queerness in Games, where it's a bunch of people uh, who I sort of identify uh, in terms of intersectionality as um, uh, queer in some way. And this game is, or this games conference is an opportunity for those people to build community. And what you'll see in games particularly is a, a consistent uh, opportunity for people to be to sort of rally around something. So rally around a game or rally, rally around a collection of games. Uh, and that's been really a, sort of a positive opportunity. Amanda? So I think the uh, writer's um, point also that I think is, is quite important is this idea that technology, that the technology and the real real world are not different for adolescents, right? That the you know conflict um, and things that are said in those spaces it, it 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 seamlessly moves between the cafeteria and the social media site and then back to the hallways at school, um, and and just in the same way that I think there's a sense I think what the caller what the writer's talking about is that there's a sense that well if I say it online it doesn't have the same impact, right? It's okay for me to say terrible things to that woman who said that thing on Twitter because it doesn't matter, because it's not in person. But I think what she's saying, and I think what a lot of teens would tell you, is that it does matter. It's the same place. It's not something where we differentiate. Well, we've talked on this show about so-called digital dualism, the idea that the digital realm and real life are separate. You looked at the question of how teens create an authentic persona online. What did you find? Well, that many teens feel that people aren't necessarily being that authentic online. Um, and part of that comes back to this idea of the sense I need to present a positive persona. At the same time, teens also told us in our study that they feel that sometimes people have opportunities to be different people um, in the online world than they do in the offline world. And sometimes that's for uh, for good, that there's ways in which they can um, be in the online world that they don't feel comfortable being in the offline world. And in fact, they are more authentic online than they are feel comfortable being offline. You know, the the other flip side of that is often teens will um, compartmentalize different identities on different sites. So, you know, I hang out with my ballet friends on Facebook, and then I my skateboarding friends on Twitter, and then I have a Tumblr about my obsession with the supernatural. Um, and so, you know, I have my different groups of friends in those different places, and, you know, my ballet friends don't get the skateboarding or the fandom, and so we don't all talk, but I can be my full sense of self across all these platforms platforms instead of on the same one. And if somebody is not comfortable with who being who they are in person, like somebody who might be LGBT, mm -hmm. they might be able to find a more comfortable space online? This is particularly true within the game space because one of the things that happens with your, your gamer handle, for example, is you don't necessarily need to use an image of yourself. You can use an avatar. You can use a 3D representation of self. And so you can be, quite literally, whomever you want. And the achievements that you make within a game are part of your profile. So, for example, if you're an excellent World of Warcraft player, that's sort of your street cred amongst other teens who play the game. So you're being evaluated not on your social status within the complex social s systems of, of high school. You're being uh, evaluated 
evaluated on your your ability, which is really satisfying in spaces where the social systems are so complex. So you're the same as the star athletes in school. Absolutely. You're the star online. And the sports analogy works exceptionally well. We have this new area called eSports, which are essentially professional video game playing. And one of the fascinating things that's happening is that uh, while some players are leaving the mobile game game space at this age, what they're doing is they're becoming game spectators. So they're watching the pros play either through uh, tools like Twitch or going to eSports leagues where they may have actually followed someone's handle and seen all the great things that they do in game, but now they're going to go see it in a stadium environment, a bit like going to see a concert after you've heard them on the radio. We got a tweet from Ida Mingus Urban who says, I disagree with the notion that you need a single online persona for all viewers. You can mm-hmm. differentiate mm-hmm. on Facebook between close friends, friends and acquaintances, and tailor your audience in many ways. Do teens do that? So that's very true. That's a great point. Um, however, when we actually studied this in our last piece of research, we found that um, teens generally don't um, take a lot of the steps that they could to make those fine-grained internal changes. Generally, they have you know their profile set to friends only, um, but. Uh, but they often don't take those steps to say, oh, this group of people can see this of inf- piece of information, this group of people can see that piece of information. And part of it, which they told us in the focus groups, was that they didn't want to get caught by having some people know that they were a part of a, on one group and another group knowing that they're sort of on the outs. By seeing somebody else's version of their profile, so basically looking over somebody's shoulder and being like, hey, why isn't that status up showing up from that friend showing up on my feed? And then them realizing that you're actually shifting and sharing different pieces of information with different people. Because again, it requires you to make explicit these very nuanced differentiations between friendships that we make kind of on the fly all the time in person, but which we don't make on social media. Well, a lot of our callers want to talk about gaming relationships, so we will start with Johannes in Germantown, Maryland. Johannes, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, I think you just have um, dissected this uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit more in detail. Because I, I actually have a friend that I grew up with as a teenager. You know, he was like me, an awkward young man who would not be able to walk up to somebody, a girl, and say, "Hey, you know, start conversation." That would lead to him, you know, having to be liked by that girl. With the advent of games, I mean, he he was very. He, one thing he's good at is he's very good at games, but put him out on the ground outside and say, hey, just strike a conversation with anybody, even a guy. The guy is at, at, at a loss of words. And now he's engaged to a girl that he met while playing a game online. And um, I mean, they're very much in love. He didn't have to do much. He just displayed his, um, his, his skills at the game. And now, you know, and she she wrote to him a message. She messaged him and, you know, you're very good. And he, he said, you're good too. And she had a name that that seemed like a girl. And they said, hey, are you a girl? And they're like, yeah, my girl. No, I bet you were very good. And then, you know, conversation, and eventually now he's about to, to marry that girl. They, they love each other. So, I mean, it gives games, I think, um, these give teenagers who are otherwise known as, you know, the, the, the outcast or something like something that's equivalent to that, those are the who are awkward, to have a chance also and say, you know, to be able to be people that can be good at something and have a following like you just have uh, been talking about earlier. Yes, Lindsay you know? was just talking about because before gaming, this is an individual who may have been considered just a nerd mm-hmm. in school. 
Absolutely. So what's really great about it is that you have to remember that games are social spaces. And so there are lots of ways to socialize. So at one point, it might have been that you were a great dancer. So every school dance was your time to shine. And what we're finding is that games are a time to shine or a moment or a space that matters the way football matters in some communities and soccer matters in other communities. And so really, games are just a, you know, it's an electronic version of some of the activities we've engaged in before. Here now is Ben in Chantilly, Virginia. Ben, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Oh, hey there. Um, actually, uh, I wanted to go back to um, uh, the queer bit. Um, as a uh, teenager growing up uh, in the mid-2000s, um, I actually used a female character in World of Warcraft to kind of explore something else, which I think was really helpful to me. And I met a lot of friends that... Um, treat me a little bit differently, not necessarily as, um, as a female, but as, uh, just as another player. And that was important to you. What, do you, uh, yes, what did you I, learn from that experience? Um, I kind of learned that I could be myself, um, and I met, I met a bunch of people that may, unfortunately didn't stay with me uh, through my life, but um, it let me open up to uh, kind of ask my own self about questions about my own queerness. Did you find that anywhere at all in the study, Amanda? So we did ask teens in our study about their um, sexual orientation and gender identity. Unfortunately, we didn't end up having enough teens who responded affirmatively um, with a non-heterosexual identity that we were able to use them as a uh, as a crosstab so, in the analysis. So we aren't able in this study to understand more detail, but we have heard from other research and from um, teens and focus groups that exactly that these uh, places are places for experimenting with different forms of identity, whether that's trying to understand yourself as an LGBTQ youth or whether that's trying to understand yourself as somebody who's interested in something that's different from what your parents believe, perhaps on a religious perspective. Um, there's a lot of ways in which the process of being a teenager and becoming an adult is about understanding yourself in different ways and separating yourself from your parents. And I think certainly social media and game space um, allows you to try on a lot of different identities and do that. Ben, thank you for your call. We move on to Lisa in McLean, Virginia. Lisa, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Toja. Um, my comment going back to going back to the comments about games that are geared more towards boys and some that are more towards girls. What I see in my teens is that they play Minecraft a lot in groups of combined boys and girls, and they have that same sense that they're. Um, reaching a goal or trying to do something together and they have that cooperation but it is a place where they can play together boys and girls Absolutely. So uh, what's wonderful about Minecraft is essentially digital Legos. And being digital Legos, there's a, a whole lot less um, gendered play, shall we say. Uh, one of the challenges, and uh, as someone who's been in this space for, for many years that I, I'm trying to combat, is this uh, sometimes there's some very strong gender typing in certain game environments. So uh, they'll use uh, a, a female description as somehow derogatory to other players, these sorts of things. And so Minecraft is is of that. Minecraft has very little of that, uh, but some of the other more popular uh, games that are popular in the first-person shooter space uh, and occasionally in the uh, role-playing space do tend to ostracize some communities just by their use of language alone. On now, and thank you for your call, Lisa, on to Laura in Oakton, Virginia. Laura, your turn. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, great shout. 
So I don't get gaming, but as a parent of uh, two boys, um, Alway, and uh, my younger boy is an avid League of Legends gamer. Uh, he has online friends that his dad, who also plays, has checked out. And I'm calling to share that uh, my older son, who's away at college, sometimes will spend time with his younger brother and his father, and they're all gaming, doing this League of Legends thing together. And it's kind of created a new family time. You know, it's interesting because before there was gaming online, they said men like to spend time together fishing because we were bonding without communicating. (laughs) But we're seeing now... Lindsay, where this bonding can continue to take place even within families through gaming. Absolutely. And one of the really neat things about uh, digital games in particular is they they have this uh, technique called rubber banding that allows a wide variety of skill levels to play together. So essentially what happens if if someone has a year's worth of experience and someone else has five years' worth of experience, they can still have fun together. And if you imagine the traditional sports environment, that doesn't always work. A very experienced basketball player who's got height advantage is not necessarily going to have a lot of fun with the the, the 12-year-old who's only 5'2". On now to an email we got from Sarah who says, middle-aged people make friends online too. I participate in a Sudoku website that attracts mostly middle-aged people from all around the world. What started with a few safe get-togethers in Sydney or Melbourne has grown into Americans and Australians visiting each other, staying in each other's homes, taking vacations together, and attending funerals. Even those who have never met still feel a deep loss when someone's spouse dies, for example. These may be online, but they are real friendships. Underscoring, Amanda, what has been said here before, that there's not necessarily a distinction between what's virtual and what's real. There isn't. And, you know, these relationships that people form online are meaningful and deep. You know, there's some research that suggests that communicating in a mediated sense, meaning through a screen, um, often allows people to feel more comfortable disclosing things to other people. And sometimes that's good because they can tell them things they wouldn't be able to otherwise tell them in person. And sometimes that's bad because they say things that are mean. But in this context, in the friendship context, it's allowing people to say things to people they might have trouble telling folks in person and allowing them to create deep relationships based on kind of mutual disclosure. And I think that's what this caller is telling us about. 800-433-8850. What are the advantages of meeting friends online? What's the nature of friendships formed through social media sites or online gaming? We'd like to hear your story. 800-433-8850. You can send us a tweet at Kojo Show using the hashtag TechTuesday. You can go to our website, kojoshow.org, ask a question or make a comment there, or send an email to kojo at wamu.org. I'm Kojo Nandi. It's Tech Tuesday, and we're joined in studio by Lindsay Grace. He's a professor in the School of Communication at American University and director of the school's game lab and studio. He joins us to have a conversation about teens and online friendship. Also with us is Amanda Lenhart, associate director of research at the Pew Research Center. Amanda, a lot of social media interactions take place on smartphones. Do teens use their phones to call 
their friends or anyone anymore? At what stage in a friendship is it okay to call someone? That's a great question. So one of the things we wanted to figure out in this uh, study was, was there a progression of kind of communication tools that you used when you made friends with somebody? And one of the things that we found is that phones are still used by teens. They're still used for a variety of purposes. But most often, phone calling is an, it's an intimate act. It's a thing that you do when you know somebody pretty well. Teens view it as kind of intrusive because it requires the person you're calling to immediately kind of on your time pick up and answer the phone, unlike a text which can be answered sort of as you will. Um, And uh, teens said when they needed to really talk to somebody about something complicated or when they had a lot to say or when they needed support, the phone is where they went. Um, And so they used it most often with their very close friends. But you would never use it to call somebody you had just met. If you gave them a phone number, the intent, which everybody knows, the norm amongst teens, that you don't actually call somebody with that phone number is that you text them. If you called them, that would be really weird. Does that rule? of calling only close friends apply to adults as well? Uh, I don't don't (laughs) think so. I certainly know plenty of adults who find teens seeming reluctance to use the phone in the same context that adults would is to be sort of uh, the sign of the apocalypse, right? That <laughs> the teenagers can't communicate on the phone properly, according to some adults. But I think it's, it's a choice, right? I think there's many adults who don't always like to talk on the phone or who find the phone intrusive and prefer to communicate by other means. Um, and it, it may be a very well that it's a generational thing. And, and, and how much you spent your time in your professional life and your personal life using the phone versus how uh, much you had other options at your disposal. Lindsay, how are teens different from adults in the way they play video games and the friends they play with? Well, that's a little challenging in that one of the things that happens is as you develop an interest in certain types of games at at 15, you find yourself still trying to engage in those 10 years later at 25 and even at 35. Uh, The challenge is that life intercedes. And so uh, having a 3 p.m. session is much harder when you have a full-time job. So one of the things that I've noticed is in games in particular, what you find is that as people uh, sort of age into more complex gaming, they tend to play shorter play periods. So it's not that I'm going to play for seven hours straight on a Friday night. It's that I'm going to tell my friends, listen, we're going to start playing League of Legends at 6 p.m. And we're going to continue for an hour or two until uh, whatever we have to put the kids to bed or whatever the I was about to say, are. because the average <laughs> age of a game player, you say now, is about 35 years old. Yes, yes. Even, so even though you want to play the same games you were playing 10 years ago, additional responsibilities, <laughs> I guess, limit the amount of time that you Absolutely. Have. And one of the other interesting things is as you uh, gain more income, you start to buy more of your play. So in, in certain areas, you earn a currency, but you can purchase sort of levels leveling up. And so what happens is it, it's a cost-benefit ratio. Do I want to buy some more gameplay or do I want to uh, simply work through it? And as a teenager, it may be easier to work through it because you have more time and less money. But as you get older, you tend to say, I'm just going to buy that shield, that element that I need in order to win. Here's Julie in Springfield, Virginia. Julie, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm, I'm curious to know in the research, my teenager, uh, freshman in high school, is, uh, loves to play games, very social online. I can hear him laughing and talking with friends from multiple schools, um, soccer team friends. And so I'm curious to know if you found any of the research where the kids could become this gregarious online personality, um, very social, but if that in any way stunted their ability to then be social in the hallways, if they sort of felt this, I get all my social elements online, therefore I don't have the need to necessarily connect in the hallways of school. Did you ever see any research where it stopped them from socializing? 
Hello. One in the school. So I think it depends on the kid. Um, and so for young people who find socializing in the hallways of school to be terrifying and challenging and hard, um, the opportunities to socialize and kind of plan what you're going to say and feel like you have more control over the interaction in a digital environment is, is a boon. It's an absolutely wonderful thing that allows you to make connections that you might not otherwise have. For teens that are already quite social, um, these opportunities for being social are, are often extensions of that. And I, I think it's really important to remember that, you know, your, our kids are still spending eight hours, nine hours every day, in or five days a week in school, both socializing and talking to pe peers and adults face-to-face. -face. So they're, they're still getting plenty of time with those kind of interactions. And that, um, in that these, these uh, it, with your son, it sounds to me like it's, it's very much an extension of his, his personality, that he's a gregarious kid and he's gregarious online and gregarious in his real world. And in the games research, one of the things we're finding is the games end up working as a, a nice sort of bridge. So they're sort of the gateway to becoming more social. So you discover uh, while uh, online chatting in a, in a game like Call of Duty that you're actually quite funny and you start to bring those jokes into the school environment where you, you didn't really have an opportunity to do that before because you were worried about the social pressure and, and so what's great about games is that they end up being this, this opportunity the, the, the core research in games basically says that the play state when we were playing is an opportunity to experiment and so the games afford those experimentations, try on new personalities as other people were saying here now, and thank you for your call. Julie is Tony in Bethesda, Maryland. Tony, your turn. I'm sorry, that's Tom in Bethesda, Maryland. Tom, go ahead, please. Good afternoon, Kojo. I love the show. I was uh, wondering, with all the control that the teens seem to have with the online gaming and video chat and all of that, is there any evidence that their behavior changes in a situation where there's video surveillance? And, you know, it's posted, you're being surveilled, you're on video, but there is no control. Well, it's not necessarily posted. There's video surveillance just about no. everywhere these days. So, Indeed. So we certainly haven't asked about that. Um, we had a study where we looked at teens and their attitudes towards privacy and what we found in, a, in a digital space, and what we found is that teens actually care quite a bit about privacy. It's just not in the same way as adults. So teens care about privacy from their parents and from teachers and from its school administrators. They care about it from the people who have power over them. Uh, adults care much more about privacy from institutions, the government, banks, people who can change their lives and have power over their ability to get a job or to get credit. Um, and so that means that teens take different kinds of steps than adults might to protect their privacy, but they're still, they're still taking those steps. That said, the question for both of you, what tips would you offer for keeping online friendships safe? So I'd actually like to mention one thing about privacy as well that sure. I think is really important in games. And this is the idea that, say, a game like League of Legends uh, may have a community policing the conversations that are coming, that are happening within the game, and it's peer policing. So there are reporting mechanisms. When you think someone's being bullied, you can actually articulate that to the organization that provides the game. Uh, and people end up finding ways to behave better within these environments because they're self-policed. And most games are constantly monitored. So uh, they may not be video monitored, but the activities are, and reported back to the organization that runs it. Your other question about developing friendships, uh, one of the things that I think has been very effective in the game space is this notion of playing together and then convening. So you might play for hours, but you are uh, separate from each other. And then you go to something like MAGFest, which is uh, you know, 14,000 gamers get together to play games together and talk about games. And they, they, they oscillate, they change between sometimes being very academic about their discussion and sometimes it's just, let's hang out and listen to chiptunes, which is sort of video game-based music, and uh, let's just talk like people do. Amanda. 
So your question about whether or not there were tips for sort of having a friendship online or a safe friendship, you know, I think it, it, the things that are important to remember is that, um, you know, in our work, we've seen that teens are generally pretty responsible about how they're making these online friendships. That said, with younger teens and younger children, um, and for certain subgroups of teenagers, particularly the research suggests that it's teens who have what we term sort of psychosocial problems. They have problems at home, they're having difficulties at school, they have mental health, physical health issues. Those are the teens who tend to engage in more risky behaviors and are making friendships that they often, very often know are risky. Um, they go and they're going to meet people who they know are adults um, for purposes that they're very fully aware of why they're going. And so those are the kids um, who are the ones that, um, you know, bear more worry for parents. Um, because they're not fully conscious of the consequences. It's, they're not fully conscious of the consequences or they, it's a little bit of damn the torpedoes. I'm trying to make relationships here and this is how I'm going to do it and I'm, I'm, I'm a risk taker and I have other issues in my life and this is what I'm going to do. And so I think the trick is for parents is to be as a where as you can to keep the lines of communication open, which I have teenagers I know is easier said than done, um, but making sure that you're talking about it and talking about the ways to kind of unfold information in these friendships. You know, you don't need to bare your soul. You don't need to give them your home address immediately. You can dole out pieces of information. So as you get to know somebody and you build the trust and you can verify who they are, then you can share more and more details about yourself, but not until you're comfortable with that person. Earlier this year, a 14-year-old Alabama girl was killed after a feud that began on Facebook moved to a local park and shots were fired. Something similar happened in Chicago, killing a 13-year-old boy. What happens when online feuds spill over into real life? Well, they, as we've talked about, the real world and the online world are the same for teenagers. Just as you're going to have that conflict that begins in the in the hallway, it moves and can be potentially accelerated in an online space. I mean, that's the thing that's different here is that there's another space. It's not just people making phone calls or knocking on people's doors. It's that you can have a whole conversation with this uh, online community that can kind of accelerate and accentuate and create um, and, it, and perhaps potentially enhance a conflict in then, and then it comes back, and back to the schoolhouse, back to the street corner. Um, but we've always had people making, I think, poor decisions with weapons and with um, people meeting each other and having conflict. And I, I don't think we can point to the social media as the cause. We can point to it as perhaps an, an enhancer. Indeed. Jane in McLean, Virginia, I think, sees a silver lining in what some may see as a cloud. Jane, it is your turn. Yeah. Go ahead, please. Yeah, it's great to hear what you're saying because um, it was a nightmare for my daughter and my son and I when we got here 10 years ago, a military family, uh, trying to um, break into the community. And my son was able to do the gaming okay. He, he, uh, he got a lot of friends that way, but my daughter, on the other hand, seemed to – she received a anonymous – type of a you know fake email saying they were going to kill her brother and her dog if she didn't do certain things and she was distraught i mean she's only 11 years old at the time and i approached the the principal about this um he dealt with it in his own way but this kind of thing continued throughout middle school and even into high school and i was just appalled at the way the teachers responded saying oh i can't make people like your daughter um, and, and just things like that that just seemed like they had no clue. And so I'm so glad to see that um, a lot of emphasis is being put on research to show that, in fact, uh, these problems do exist and that they create a significant, you know, they impact children tremendously. And um, so that's just my comment. That yes, I think indeed the online environment has made us much more aware of how widespread bullying is than we were before. Mm -hmm. 
Certainly. I mean, bullying is an issue that we deal with. And uh, as I think the caller suggests, these bullying uh, things, uh, they happen both online and in person. Um, And there is a certain sense of bravado that I think can be enhanced behind the digital wall that allows people to say things to somebody else that they would never say to their face. Um, And it's unfortunate that we, we still don't really have great rules and laws and policies in effect for schools to know how to handle this. Certainly, there's jurisdictional issues if it doesn't happen on campus or teachers even allowed to intervene. And I think there's organizations that are starting to try to help schools manage some of these issues, but um, they're challenging and difficult. And and people are cruel in online spaces just as they can be kind. Jane, thank you very much for your call. And Lindsay, I don't know how much this has to do with online friendship among teens, but since we've got you here, Mm -hmm. I've been reading about online fantasy sports games like DraftKings, which advertises heavily On TV, the company says it's all legal because these are games of skill, not games of chance. What do you say? We were just talking about this in my course last night because we were talking about the context of of, uh, online poker and and professional poker as something that is a skill-based activity. Therefore, we we don't have to worry about the gambling restrictions. What's what's really interesting about it is that uh, in some ways DraftKings is is following this wave of of sort of general e-sports, electronic sports. And there is such a just fundamental hunger in audiences right now to watch others play, which I think is very interesting. Uh, And I think it's partly just our general appreciation of play. So there's more and more literature that is saying that one of the healthiest things human beings can do, essential to our development, is play. And so when we have time, we play ourselves. When we have just enough time to watch others play, we we watch others play. And we've known that because we've watched sports for many, many years, and we're watching others play. But are fantasy sports games games of skill or games of chance? Ah, um. <laughs> there's games of there are games of skill with a little bit of chance thrown in. Yes, yes. <laughs> so there's um, there's actually a, a traditional piece of uh, literature, uh, a man named Brian Sutton Smith, who's written uh, extensively about the kinds of ways that we play, and one of them is uh, high on what he calls the rhetoric of fate. So we play games that are of chance because we ultimately think games of chance have something to do with either the gods ordaining that we should win, or us being able to find a way to milk the system in our benefit. So if you look at a lot of gamblers, their skill view is that they, they've got a system that beats statistics in some way. God seemed to have ordained that I should lose. Lindsay Grace is <laughs> professor in the School of Communication at American University and director of the school's game lab and studio. Amanda Lenhart is associate director of research at the Pew Research Center. Thank you both for joining us and thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Namdi. Thanks for listening to The Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at WAMU.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.